This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological, the podcast where we explore some of the fascinating ins and outs of the science of life. Today we're going to be talking about pressure. Us humans love to explore the Earth, often travelling to extreme places such as deserts and glaciers, even though our bodies are not necessarily well suited to these environments. Two environments that can push our bodies to extremes are being underwater and being at extremely high altitude. Yet scuba diving and mountaineering are two hobbies that many people enjoy. So what is it about these environments that is so challenging? And how does our physiology respond to these challenges? In this episode, we'll be speaking to Lydia Simpson from Bangor University and James Clark from King's College London to find out more. I'm Amy Warnock. And I'm Emily Wilde. Now, let's get physiological. So the main physiological challenge at altitude is the fact that barometric pressure is reduced. So with every breath that you take, there's less oxygen in it, um, which really stresses the body um, and the lungs, heart and circulation have to work harder in order to satisfy the, the body's demand for oxygen. Many people enjoy mountaineering as a hobby and like to scale tall mountains across the world. But ascending to these high altitudes means that there's less oxygen for us to breathe which, especially in people who aren't used to living at high altitude, can cause some problems. Lydia Simpson from Bangor University explains. So in lowlanders, there's lots of pathophysiology or things that can go wrong in response to altitude exposure. So a lot of people might experience acute mountain sickness. So most people that go to high altitude or lowland natives um, might get a headache, essentially feel like you're a bit hungover. And that can happen anything above 3,000 metres. And that usually passes within a couple of days. Uh, And if it doesn't, you can take paracetamol or ascend to a lower altitude. However, sometimes people can get more serious issues. So high altitude pulmonary edema, so they can get fluid on the lungs, which obviously then makes it harder for oxygen to pass from the lungs into the bloodstream. And also sometimes people can get cerebral edema, which is fluid on the brain. And pulmonary edema and cerebral edema can actually be fatal if it's not treated and you're not brought down soon enough. So when suffering from serious altitude-induced illnesses, such as pulmonary and cerebral edema, it's important to move to low altitudes to reduce the symptoms. But if you're not suffering from any serious symptoms, if we stay at high altitude for a while, can our bodies adapt? Lots of processes happen which actually make you more tolerant of the hypoxic environment. So the first things that usually happen is you breathe a lot more. However, over time, you also compensate through you produce a lot more red blood cells in order to be able to carry more oxygen in the blood as well. So our bodies are able to adapt to high altitudes to make sure that we get enough oxygen into our tissues. Anything above 1,500 metres above sea level can be considered high altitude, with problems such as mountain sickness usually occurring at elevations from around 3,000 metres. In the UK, the highest mountain is Ben Nevis, which stands at 1,345 metres above sea level. So we're in no danger of suffering from mountain sickness here. This means that for her research, Lydia has to travel around the world to study populations that live at high altitudes so that she can study the effects of living in a low oxygen environment for a long time. 
there's three high altitude populations. Um, so fortunately, I've been able to study both Sherpa, who are native to the Himalayas, um, and also the natives to the Andes of the South America. So they have actually, interestingly, adapted very differently to essentially the same physiological stressor. So I look at neurocontrol of blood pressure. So in the Sherpa, they actually have only a slight activation of the sympathetic nervous system, whereas Andeans tend to have a larger activation, which is basically essentially the body's stress response. They both have a similar blood pressure. Um, Sherpa also have maintained quite a high ventilatory response to um, altitude, whereas Andeans have a more blunted ventilatory response. So a ventilatory response is how much you breathe in response to, to oxygen. So when oxygen is reduced, one of the first responses you get is to increase the amount of breaths that you take to try and increase the amount of oxygen that you get. Uh, and lowlanders have quite a strong increase in breathing rate when they go to altitude. And this appears to be quite similar in the Sherpa, whereas it's a lot less in the Andean population. And the Andeans, as a result, tend to increase the number of red blood cells in their blood to try and increase the oxygen carrying capacity as a, as a way to compensate for that. So some populations, such as the Sherpa, who are native to the Himalayas, and those living in the Andes, actually live at these high altitudes. Their bodies have adapted to living in a low oxygen environment in different ways. Sherpa often have an increased breathing rate to help them get more oxygen into their bodies, while Andean individuals have higher numbers of red blood cells to help them increase the oxygen carrying capacity of their blood. The fact that our bodies can produce more red blood cells when at high altitude is often used by athletes hoping to increase their athletic performance. That's the the premise of why people train at altitude to increase their red blood cells so they can actually carry more oxygen at any given time but there is a kind of trade-off as you increase the number of red blood cells your blood actually gets uh, a bit thicker so it can increase the work of the heart in, in pumping the blood round and this is what we we see in some high altitude natives that actually become maladapted to their environment so in south america a lot of native individuals can get chronic mountain sickness and one of the characteristics of that is a large increase in the red blood cell content which makes their blood quite viscous and thick and actually it makes it really hard for it to be pumped around the cardiovascular system and for high altitude native andians especially that pathology is actually relieved when they go to sea level but they have to stay in those regions because that's where the work is. They don't have any social support if they then move down. So it's important to, to research chronic mountain sickness and actually try and look for treatments because there's not many treatments at the moment. And that's really the, the aim because it's then impacting their quality of life. So it is a national health concern in, in those individuals. Some individuals living at high altitude can actually become maladapted to their environment and suffer from chronic mountain sickness. So it's important that we study what happens to physiology at high altitude so that we can develop treatments. Studying physiology at high altitude can also have other clinical implications. So we um, use high altitude in healthy individuals as a model of chronic hypoxia, I guess, independent of comorbidity. There's a lot of overlap with, I guess, other conditions that are characterised by chronic hypoxia. So some clinical conditions, people at sea level can be chronically hypoxic. 
and some of those mechanisms overlap. So by looking at high altitude natives, so Sherpa and high altitude Andeans have coped very well with chronic hypoxia and show superior physical function compared to when lowlanders go to high altitude. And we can also look at those that are maladapted to their environment in order to understand a little bit more about what makes people thrive under conditions of low oxygen and what actually makes people sick and, I guess, not thrive. So that sometimes can translate to clinical populations as well. Hypoxia is a condition in which tissues of the body are deprived of an adequate oxygen supply and it can happen at sea level. A severe asthma attack, some lung diseases and anemia can all result in hypoxia. So by studying both lowland and high altitude populations, we might be able to understand more about and develop new treatments for these conditions. Finally, as a lowlander, we were interested in hearing about Lydia's experiences at high altitude. In Nepal, like the first day when we got to 5,050 metres, I was, felt like I was being hit in the head with a sledgehammer. <laughs> Um, but it, it did subside after 24 hours and, and as obviously the acclimatisation process happens you, I actually felt fine by the time we'd spent 10 days there so in Peru we went to a, a slightly lower altitude but we actually drove up there in 9 hours so the risk of you getting acute mountain sickness is, is linked with how fast you ascend so the faster you ascend I guess the, the slower your body can then react, there's like kind of a lag in um, those processes, so you are more likely to, to feel the, the side effects. Whereas if you're trekking up more slowly, like we did in Nepal, your body kind of has chance to, to adjust. So the, the recommendation is, is to gradually ascend and have a couple of days of climatisation where you're staying at the same altitude. So now it's time for physiology, true or false. So this is the part of the show where we try and debunk some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding physiology. So my question for you, Emily, is does spending time at high altitude lead to weight loss? Oh, um, I don't know. Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> I'm glad you knew the answer. <laughs> uh, so can you think of any reasons why this might be? Oh, um... I don't know, maybe something to do with, like, decreased appetite? Yeah, you're actually exactly right. Oh. <laughs> well done. Uh, well, there are actually lots and lots of different reasons why people tend to lose weight at high altitude. It's been known for quite a while that people that go to high altitudes tend to lose weight, but it wasn't known for a long time exactly why it was. It was kind of assumed that when people go to high altitude, they're expending a lot more energy than usual. You're climbing mountains and stuff. Yep. Um, so it was kind of assumed they were just burning more calories. Yeah. But recently, research has actually shown it's probably more to do with our appetite and our metabolism. So in one study, they did a simulated stay on Everest using a hyperbaric chamber. So they basically... Okay, so they're like down, down at sea level, but simulating climbing Everest. Exactly. So they used the hyperbaric chamber to, to simulate the pressures they would be experiencing by climbing Everest. I wonder if these people could then claim they'd climbed Everest or not. I know, it's quite cool though, isn't it? <laughs> so these people had access to as much food as they wanted. And importantly, they had no stresses. So things like cold exposure. Obviously, when you go up a mountain, it's going to be cold. It's going to make you shiver, burn more energy. They weren't allowed to sort of run around loads. So activity was limited. And these people lost an average of around five kilograms during the experiment. And this was actually... That's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. And yeah. this was largely due to reduction in calorie intake. 
Um, but there was also another study, and this was done in 20 obese males. And this was done in an environmental research station on the Zugspitze, I think that's how it's pronounced, which is Germany's highest mountain. So here, again, activity was limited to slow walks uh, through the station. Food was freely available. And they actually found that the basal metabolic rate was increased at high altitude. And again, the participants reduced their energy intake during the stay. Um, so obviously, again, led to a slight reduction in body weight. So it does seem that being at a high altitude can facilitate weight reduction, not only by suppressing appetite, but also by increasing energy expenditure. Um, and this does make sense because, as Lydia was saying, uh, we increase our heart rate and breathing rate at high altitudes. So you can imagine that our metabolic rate has to increase to mm -hmm. sort of make up for this. Yeah. The degree at which altitude leads to weight reduction is also dose dependent. So at modest altitude, loss of weight is comprised mainly of fat, whereas when you get to high altitudes, it actually results in muscle wasting. So this is probably why base camps for mountains are usually placed at around 5,000 to 5,050 meters, because at this altitude, body weight homeostasis can actually be maintained. So you can maintain your body weight at these, at these okay, altitudes. Okay, that's interesting. But it's also important to note that there are lots of individual differences in how people are affected, and particularly differences between men and women. So a lot of scientific studies are often biased towards men, uh, which is actually demonstrated by the fact that the two studies I just mentioned were both done on men. Um, and the results of these sort of studies are then often just generalised to the population as a whole. But you can't really do that because obviously the physiology of men and women is different. So studies into how altitude affects women has actually shown that there are fewer changes in body weight for women at high altitude and that the calorie requirement of women at altitude is actually similar to that of sea level. Oh. So, yes. So that was a long-winded way of me saying that, yes, being at high altitude can lead to weight loss, but it depends on lots of different factors. So now it's time for physiology and film. So this is the part of the podcast where we explore some of the science behind the blockbusters. Okay, so today I've chosen to talk about the film 47 Metres Down. Have you seen it? I actually have, indeed. I do love a shark film, um, so this is a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. So for those of you who haven't watched it, uh, the basic premise is that two sisters get trapped in a diving cage 47 metres underwater with sharks circling around them, and it's about their fight for survival. So 47 metres underwater, that's obviously a long way down. It's actually roughly equivalent to a 10-storey building. Wow. And every 10 or so metres you go down produces the same amount of pressure as the whole of the Earth's atmosphere at sea level. So at 10 metres down, a person experiences almost two atmospheres of pressure. And at almost 50 metres down, so they were at 47, they would experience around five and a half atmospheres of pressure oh my goodness yeah so what does that mean for our physiology well all that pressure really affects kind of the air spaces in our bodies so this is parts of our ears and our sinuses and as gas is compressible and as the pressure mounts the air-filled areas of our body like our sinus cavities interior parts of the ear as well as our lungs are all impacted in diving, it's really important to kind of equalise this pressure regularly as you go down. So divers are taught various techniques like pinching their noses and blowing gently. But in this film, the sisters, they don't descend slowly. I don't know if you remember that scene where they're just... No, you're right, because the, the cage breaks and so it actually goes down 
extremely quickly really fast so they plummet to 47 meters without stopping and without being able to equalize that pressure and at the bottom one of them is shown to have a really like minor bloody nose but that's about it (laughs) um but plummeting more than five atmospheres of pressure would actually have quite serious effects on their ears so likely actually perforated eardrums i was thinking it's almost the equivalent of like when a flight takes off and yeah you can get quite sorry as that way so yes so it's it's quite bad and perforated eardrums kind of can cause deafness and certainly a lot of pain but all we see is this kind of token nosebleed by one of them (laughs) um so physiologically i'm gonna say this film is quite unlikely in that one of them would only have suffered a nosebleed Earlier, we spoke to Lydia Simpson about the physiological challenges faced by humans at high altitude in a low air pressure environment. Now, moving from one extreme to the other, we spoke to James Clark from King's College London about the physiological challenges we have in a high pressure environment, diving underwater. The primary problem that humans are faced with when they go diving is the depth and the pressure. Uh, As you probably know, uh, air is a fairly compressible gas and has a very low density, but water is very heavy, it's very dense, and the deeper you go underwater, the more pressure you're exerted on. So the problem with diving is that we like to dive to the bottom of the seabed to see what's down there, and that tends to be up to 30, 40, or 50 metres away, and that exerts pressures of up to six times atmospheric pressure on the human body. Scuba diving is a pastime enjoyed by many. But when we dive underwater, our body is exposed to an environment that is much higher than the pressure we experience at sea level. Clearly, our bodies are not adapted to life in this sort of environment. So what are the main challenges we face when diving? Diving can be dangerous simply because of the environment you're in. Uh, If you think about it, you can't breathe underwater without exogenous gas, so a gas supply. Um, But if you take that out of the equation and assume that the diver is correctly equipped and trained, the two primary problems are the effects of gas that dissolve in your blood and your tissues while you're diving, and also the effects of changes in pressure. So if you go underwater, you are essentially being squashed, and anything with air in it will get squashed. There's a physics law that describes that called boil law and so that tissues with air in them will get crushed so ears uh, gut lungs all those sort of things and the second problem as I said is the gases that you're breathing will dissolve in that tissue so your muscles and your your liver your heart your kidney your brain will all have gas dissolved in it we probably don't think about it very often but we live in an atmosphere of air which is 79% nitrogen and we do nothing with that nitrogen on the surface of the earth it just sits in our body So if I was to wring a person out and extract the nitrogen from them, they would contain a lot of nitrogen. And when you go diving, because you're breathing air at a higher pressure, you breathe in more nitrogen. So your body essentially fills up with more and more nitrogen the longer you spend underwater. And that's got to go somewhere. And if you think about it like a fizzy drink, we'll take a fizzy drink and open it, and all that fizz that's been pumped in the factory likes to come out. And essentially when you ascend, you come up from the end of a dive, all that nitrogen that's dissolved in your body wants to come out. And if you come up too quickly, rather like if you open your can of Coke too quickly, you start to fizz and create these bubbles, which can cause uh, catastrophic problems. Diving can lead to a buildup of nitrogen bubbles in the tissues of our body, known as decompression sickness or the bends. Symptoms of decompression sickness include joint pain, dizziness and extreme fatigue. In very severe cases, it can be fatal. The bends is usually treated using hyperbaric oxygen therapy, 
This is the delivery of pure oxygen at a pressure substantially higher than that of atmospheric pressure, which is usually done using something called a hyperbaric chamber. At this chamber pressure, nitrogen bubbles are reduced in size or reabsorbed to ensure adequate blood flow. The recompression also prevents further bubble formation and provides high amounts of oxygen to the injured tissues. Now this all sounds incredibly scary, so what steps can we take to try and reduce the risk of developing decompression sickness when we're diving? The only way we can really protect ourselves from decompression sickness, the evolution of these bubbles, is not to go diving. And I know that's not the answer that people want to hear, rather like if you don't want to have a car accident, don't buy a car. Um, and statistically, every dive has a risk of decompression sickness. Um, we, we mitigate against that by not spending very long underwater. Uh, we protect ourselves from that by following very strict protocols, um, rather like the can of Coke. If we go to a, a nice little bottle of fizzy water now with a, with a screw cap, if you were to sit at home and very slowly undo that screw cap, you can do it without any bubbles being formed. So at the end of a deep dive or a long dive, if you just come up really, really slowly, you will help get rid of those bubbles. And that sounds a very simplistic way of looking at it, but in the last 150 years, that's pretty much what diving research has taught us. And we now have very complicated computer algorithms and tables that we can follow, which essentially uh, minimize the risk of decompression sickness. Something else we can do is look at our health. Um, Bubbles like to form where rough places are. That's one very simple theory. Again, going back to the fizzy drink analogy, if you pour champagne into a very bad glass, you get lots of bubbles. If you pour champagne into a nice clean glass, you get very few bubbles. And our endothelium, the, the layer inside our blood vessels on which bubbles like to form, is a really good place to focus your, your attention on when you're looking at health. If you have a healthy vasculature, you tend to produce less bubbles. And so really, is like the answer for everything. If you're fit and healthy, you're less likely to get injured while doing sport. So divers have special protocols to try and reduce the risk of nitrogen bubbles forming. This includes diving for only a short period of time, as this means that less nitrogen is dissolved in the blood and also ascending slowly as fast changes in pressure can cause the formation of nitrogen bubbles. So we've spoken a lot about diving, but what are some other aspects of hyperbaric physiology? There's a lot more to hyperbaric physiology than just scuba diving. Um, hyperbaric just means higher than normal pressure. So you don't have to be exposed to very high multiples of atmospheres. So where we go diving, we may be exposed to five, six or seven atmospheres. But actually just being slightly above normal atmospheric pressure can cause a lot of problems. Uh, the analogy I would say is that if you're in an aeroplane, you may not think about it, but you're actually exposed to much less pressure than you would be on Earth. So simply just changing your altitude can change the pressure environment in which you're living. Obviously, diving is extreme in that respect, but we, we function as, as beings based on gradients mainly, so the difference between something on the inside of a cell and something on the outside of a cell. And our respiratory system and our metabolic system run on gradients, and oxygen's an important gradient. So we have more oxygen in the atmosphere, we suck it into our bodies through our lungs, and it gets to our cells down a gradient. If you are exposed to slightly higher than normal pressures of oxygen, so for instance, I would put on a, a mask on my face and breathe in 30% or 40% oxygen compared to the 21 I'm used to, I'm actually in a hyperoxic environment, and that's what hyperbaric environments do to us. They give us more molecules than we're used to getting, and that can have chronic effects. So if we're exposed to high pressures for a very long period of time, they can be really quite, quite nasty effects. But if you're exposed to 
medium pressures for a short period of time. The effects may not seem particularly obvious or common, but there's been some really good science over the last five or ten years that have actually shown that the genetics of people that are exposed to diving regularly are changed. They have different genes expressed in their blood cells. So that's telling you something about hyperbarics. It's telling you that pressure is doing something to the human body that uh, is way beyond just being squashed or being expanded. So hyperbaric physiology relates to our physiology at a higher than normal pressure. Whilst being in a hyperbaric environment can be dangerous, it can also be used as a treatment for conditions that you might not necessarily relate to a change in pressure. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy can also be used to treat carbon monoxide poisoning as it reduces the amount of carbon monoxide in the blood and restores the oxygen level to normal as quickly as possible. Hyperbaric chambers can also be used to treat brain abscess, especially in situations when surgery is difficult or the patient isn't responding to other treatments. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy likely helps in these situations in two ways. Firstly, it creates a high oxygen environment which can inhibit the bacteria responsible for the abscess, as these are generally anaerobic, which means they don't need oxygen. The pressure in a hyperbaric chamber could also help to reduce brain swelling. So how else can we apply hyperbaric physiology? Our understandings of disbarrier, so the changes in pressure, not just getting higher pressure but also getting lower pressure, are driven on the whole by industry. Um, no one wants to invest large amounts of money in research to look at how divers off the Great Barrier Reef enjoy themselves. There's not much money in that. But there's a lot of money in industry, in the uh, deep oil research that's going on in the North Sea and things like that, where people are being exposed to high pressures. And that may seem, again, it's one in a thousand, maybe one in a million people get to do that. We're learning a lot from that, which we've applied quite strangely, to our space race and uh, the, the uh, investigation of human spaceflight. Um, people don't think about it very often, but the vacuum of space is a very big pressure change from when you're in the ISS. And when you go out onto an EVA, uh, we saw a few years ago Tim Peake doing his uh, great little EVA outside the ISS, there was a drop in pressure inside that suit when you leave the ISS, and that drop in pressure can actually instigate the same problems that we see in divers when they've come up from a dive. So actually, hundreds of years of diving-related research in the last 60 years have really helped us explore space. I spoke before about small changes over long periods of time, and one of the things we are faced with if we are to live on other planets is that we'll be having to cope with very small changes over a very long period of time. And I think those small changes are going to change things that we don't yet understand. And I think hyperbaric research, diving research, and altitude research put into, into context in one big package may actually give us the information we need to be able to understand how we're going to cope with that. So as well as helping divers, it may be that hyperbaric physiology holds the key to exploring life on other planets. So now it's time for, oh my god, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the studies that are a little bit more interesting. <laughs> a little bit out there. <laughs> well, this one will not disappoint. So I hope you don't plan on eating in the next while, because today I'll be talking about penguin poo. Lovely. That, that's not something you've considered at all? <laughs> Absolutely not, no. <laughs> Specifically, I'll be talking about a paper called Pressures Produced When Penguins Poo, Calculations on Avian Defecation by Victor Benno Meyer-Rosho and Yosef Gal. 
in 2003, or as I like to call it, the projectile penguin poo paper. Wow. So it is related to pressure, though. Well yeah, done. Yeah, it, it is related to pressure. <laughs> a little bit out there. but um, So they set to calculate how far penguins uh, can poo from its anus and the pressure in which they expel that poo. Well, I don't... I, but how do you do well, that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, so a bit of background first. Penguins don't actually leave their nests to poo. Instead, the authors describe how they move to the edge of their nest, stand up, turn their back nest outwards, bend forward, lift their tail and shoot the poo out of their anus. <laughs> so you don't want to be pooing in your nest no. because of all the problems and infections that this might cause. So they go to the edge of the nest and they just shoot that poo projectile straight out. Poo. Project, yeah. Projectile poo, the projectile poo paper. Great. Um, and they wanted to know the exact kind of exit velocity and the distance of the feces. And really, don't we all? Um, I'm actually desperate to know, please, (laughs) pray tell. So they found that penguins expelled their poo on average 40 centimetres away, plus or minus 12 centimetres. But that poo then leaves behind a kind of whitish or pinkish streak that can then end a few centimetres away from the nest's periphery. Um, And this projectile poo is roughly about one centimetre wide. And I'm sure you want to know that the colour of the faeces obviously depends on what meal they have recently eaten. So like a fish dinner, um, you know, fish and chips. Exactly. Imagine (laughs) presenting this data at a conference. I mean, (laughs) there would be quite a few laughs, I, I would imagine. So as well as distance, they also concluded that the internal launch pressure that the penguin kind of reaches internally is about as much as 600 grams per square centimetre. So to kind of put it into human terms, this is actually three times more than what humans generate when doing their number twos. Well, I'd hope so. I don't want to project them around the bar. (laughs) (laughs) But the scientists note that what role the wind plays in this remains unknown. So I think there's, you know, there's a future in projectile penguin poo. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm in the wrong career path. (laughs) So today we've spoken about the physiological challenges we're faced with in areas of high pressure and low pressure. Lydia Simpson told us about her research in populations living at high altitude. And James Clark discussed some of the science behind his favourite hobby, diving. Join us next time for more insight into the amazing world of physiology. I've been Emily Wilde. And I've been Amy Warnock. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.